Hello. Hey, John. How are you? I'm doing good, Dan. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good. You know, keeping busy. Too busy, really. But um, oh, too busy. Too busy these days. Yeah. Oh dear. Well, it may uh, it may cheer you up to know that um, over on the Omnibus Project, someone heard me talking about chocolate bars, and they sent me a, a case of Canadian chocolate bars called Jersey Milks, Ooh. and uh, they're in the style of a British or European coffee or a, a chocolate bar that that um, that doesn't have all that delicious Hershey's wax, but instead has some kind of milky, buttery milk. Milk butter. Okay. And uh, so I had one for breakfast. So I'm going to be all fired up here. Jersey milk. Okay, hang on here. Hang on. Jersey milk is a chocolate bar consisting of solid milk chocolate. I can confirm that. It has a white wrapper with gold writing. That's right. The Jersey milk chocolate bar was introduced in 1924, originally produced by... Nielsen Dairy production was transferred to Cadbury's when Nielsen sold the Cadbury's product lines that Nielsen had acquired in 1987 back to Cadbury's in 1996. But Jersey oh. milk packages continued to bear the Nielsen brand as of September 2020. As of April 2016, the only package of Jersey milk listed on the Snackworks website is a 700 gram package of Jersey milk miniatures. Oops. Although the Canadian Favorites website F-A-V-O-U-R-I-T-S, lists a 180-gram pack of four 45-gram bars. London Drugs offers 45-gram bars, and Amazon.com offers a 100-gram bar. I received a box, and this has to have come directly from Canada. Mm -hmm. I received a a box of 24 45-gram bars. Whoa. 45 gram bar being a, a regular sized candy bar. Mm-hmm. And I have 24 of them here in a box. And so I had one. I haven't had any other food today. Just a big cup of coffee and a chocolate bar. And boy, are you going to get the, the benefit of that? I can already feel <laughs> the articulateness just coursing <laughs> through my veins. So this might need to become then part of your uh, Thursday routine then to do. To do that. No, whenever I do this type of thing, whenever I wake up and think that having a chocolate bar for breakfast is a good idea, uh, I always regret it um, because whatever, I'm going to have some kind of sugar, sugar zoom and then crash and then I'll be all off kilter and whatever food I do eat today will just, I don't know, it'll be in the wrong position. But I've made that choice and I'm going to live, I'm going to live with it. Live according to that choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I now, like I like that you get sent. You mention something, and then someone sends you s- something. Um, I I get that a little bit. Uh, there's a guy right now who's helping me or trying to help me get uh, the PlayStation Five for my kids who've been asking for it for you know since two months before it was announced. Is it scarce? The problem is yes, it is scarce. But the problem is that. Um, they're primarily being sold online and anytime that they, you know, in, in many places you have to buy it online and pick it up in the store, but they're very scarce. They do not have a lot of these things being made and they have all these bots and scalpers who use scripts and stuff. So as soon as, as soon as some become available, there are these bots that will find it and buy as many as they're allowed with, you know, they'll make multiple accounts to use and the scalpers will get all of them 
and then they'll sell them on eBay at huge, huge markups. So I don't know how much the thing is supposed to be, 400 bucks maybe? I don't know. Something, let's just say it's 400 bucks. The scalpers will, will buy 50 of them. All 50 that were at one store will get bought, and then oh. they'll sell them on eBay for $1,200 a piece. Oh, man. And those go fast too. So it's, I hate these darn scalpers. So this guy that's trying to help me, um, he says he's going to try and get one. And I don't know how he, he got one for himself. So he knows how to do it. Right. And I told him, I said, I'll pay, I'll pay you. I'll pay you a bounty. If you uh, can get me one of these things, a boon, a boon. Yeah. Wow. And do you think that the playing experience of this thing is going to be worth all this hullabaloo? No. Right. But you my know, kid, when my uh, kids sure do, <laughs> <laughs> when, uh, when, when Millennium Girlfriend was working for Snapchat. Yes. I don't know if I talked about this at the time. I might have signed a non-disclosure agreement then. But, um, you know, that was during the moment when the glasses, the Snapchat glasses, whatever those were called. Mm. I uh, remember Do you remember that. those? Yeah. Yes. Uh, they were released during that period. And we actually, the two of us, went to New York City for the big debut. And there was a pop-up store across from the Apple store and lines around the block and people, scalpers, uh, or, or people were hiring line sitters to wait in line for them all day. Mm, and mm -hmm. Kanye came up and there was a big, <laughs> there was a big to do, uh, because a woman showed up and made a huge scene, you know, a huge, like, do you know who I am scene? And it turned out that she was, when they finally got to the bottom of who she was, she was, uh, I, I, it's a, it's a guy that, um, a guy that men's shoes are named after bean. What's the, what's the, that, Jeff, um, Jeffrey bean, Jeffrey bean. Apparently it was Jeffrey bean's wife. And, uh, and she felt that that was significant enough of a connection that she should be able to jump the line. Mm -hmm. It was it, all day long. It was just a, it was a crazy to do. And of course, William girlfriend was a, a lawyer for the company. So she was in New York to handle any legal issues that might have, uh, popped up in this whole, you know, kablooey. And I, the two of us went down to the big pop-up store and, you know, of course we were ushered in secret entrance and we went through and it was a, it was a warehouse, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we went through and met everybody and, you know, shaking hands. I met the woman that designed the glasses and I thought the glasses were very cool looking, mm -hmm. although they had, they were purposeless, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, and then there was this vending machine at the end of a long hallway and there were a bunch of kids standing around in what looked to me just like normal polo shirts and khaki pants. But millennium girlfriend explained that they were actually cashmere shirts because they were the shirt that the CEO of Snapchat, who was some 27 year old, uh, that's the shirt that he prefers. Mm. And so he had all of the staff wearing the, you know, he got whatever, a hundred of these cashmere shirts so that all of his crew had the same look of like, do you like that like kind of thing? Is that a thing? College like? student, but no, I found the whole, I found it all just ludicrous. And the idea that, you know, that the Steve jobs, you know, Steve jobs at least bought that black turtleneck. What off the rack or was it an expensive thing? You would know this. 
Um, right? Is that was that black turtleneck an it expensive? Was, shirt? It was an expensive thing, but the Johnny Ive had these T-shirts that were like super expensive that he basically had like almost custom made, and then he bought like hundreds of them. And you know, but if you think about this, and I've I've always wanted to get your take on this. Yeah. If, if you if let's say you came out with a clothing line, um. Right. Like, for example, I if like you, where this is going so if, far. If you take like Greg Norman, you know who Greg Norman is, the uh, Australian the golfer. Uh, golfer. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a very, very, I'll put him in the show notes. He was a very good golfer and he came out with a line of uh, clothing. He wore a hat. He, fam- did. he famously wore a hat, right? He did. Yes. He wore like an uh, Aussie, Aussie style outback, outback style hat which is the equivalent of an american cowboy hat but it's the australian cowboy hat essentially is what he what he wore and he was known as the shark uh that was his that was his nickname and so his apparel line that he came out with you could get a hat like his but the main thing was he made a lot of these uh you know like like um i think the shirts was what really got him you know people would the golfers were all getting the greg norman shirts they had the little shark logo on them and he would wear them he would wear his own stuff and i kind of always you know i always kind of liked that part of it was branding and advertising he's he was really really good at marketing but a lot of the time when you see someone who has a company like you'll see the ceo of a company and all the employees are wearing the t-shirts and the shirts with the logos on it, but they, the CEO never does. The, oh, the, yeah. the head guy never does. And so I've always been torn, you know, because eventually I'll have a huge, you know, clothing and apparel line as well as, as you will. Sure. And I always wonder like, what's the, what's the right optics on this? Do you want to wear a, do you want to wear your own brand that way? Or is it somehow as the, operator of the company or the brand that you're somehow above wearing your own stuff well in rock and roll um yeah did you you ever wear a long winner's t-shirt on stage have i asked you i feel like i've asked you this no of course not the only person in rock and roll that can wear their own merch is lemmy (laughs) lemmy wore a motorhead t-shirt and that was fine uh every everyone accepted that you know, Lemmy was Motorhead and Motorhead was Lemmy and, you know, who, who better to wear a Motorhead t-shirt? Right. Um, I don't think anyone else in rock and roll ever tried to do that. Mm-hmm. And if I can't imagine, the only time I ever had a long winter's t-shirt on my body was we were in Europe. It was sort of toward the end of a tour. Um, I had no clean clothes. We had slept in the van. We woke up and it, we, I think we were in Switzerland or Austria and we were, we had a apartment that we were going to go spend the night in and we had, or I'm sorry, spend the day in before the show. And we went and I, I was sitting in the van. I don't know what happened. Did I spill coffee? Something happened and I had to put on a long winter shirt to walk from the van to the apartment. And even then I was like, wow, I'm, I'm honestly wearing a long winter's t-shirt right now. Like that's kind of hard to, mm-hmm. but, you know, we had a good laugh. We had a good laugh about it. But if I was, if I no, if I had a brand of, if I was Ralph Lauren, 
No, I don't think I would wear my own brand. I think I would wear the clothes that inspired the brand. You know, like Ralph Lauren can afford to wear the clothes that not that the rest of us can't. He can afford to wear the clothes that he made Ralph Lauren clothes to imitate so that we could all wear those clothes instead of having to pay right. the real money for the clothes. Sure. But the the thing about this Snapchat clothes was that it was part of that San Francisco or California tech. It, they, they exemplified that tech mentality where the um, – the shirts themselves and the, the clothes themselves mm-hmm. were meant to look completely regular. Mm. Just like, hey, man, T-shirt and jeans. It's just that the T-shirts cost $1,200 because they were made out of alpaca or right, something. something. And that was the, you know, that was always the part that was like, um, I remember at one point getting off an airplane at SFO and walking through the airport and everybody was in the airport in that terminal was really dressed down. They were all just dressed in jeans and regular looking shirts. And I was walking through the airport and I'm kind of thinking like there's something a little off. Like what am I, what am I sensing about this crowd? Because they're all standing in San Francisco. They're all standing around talking to each other and and being fancy. And then I realized that what I was sensing was that they were all wearing $900 shoes. <laughs> Every single one of these characters in a t-shirt and jeans had on super expensive shoes. You know, mm-hmm. leather, Italian, shiny, uh, bluchers or whatnot. And I had never, I don't think at that point in time I'd ever seen it before because Seattle tech, uh, they all wear t-shirts and hoodies, but they also wear shitty shoes. Mm -hmm. Like they, they take the shittiness all the way. They don't stop at the shoes and, and get nice. Uh Um, and I think in Seattle, the hoodies are all like garbage hoodies too. They're not made out, out of alpaca. So it was, it was a little bit of a head head scratcher for me. Yeah. But the, the, the point of the Snapchat glasses thing was that, um, millennium girlfriend and I were given the opportunity, uh, even though she was a, an executive at the company, this was a thing where we were given the opportunity to walk up to the, to the machine, which looked like a Coke machine and interact with the machine, which was supposed to be fun. It had a screen and it had some prompts and, Mm -hmm. and it was, you know, it was, it was fun. And there was a person whose job it was to stand next to the machine and help you interact with it. And then we were allotted, I think it was one pair of glasses each and one extra pair for friends and family. And they were, I don't remember how much, but $200 or something. Mm -hmm. And we each got a pair. She, of course, had to. I mean, it was tax deductible. It was her own company's product. And I got a pair. Mm -hmm. And I got a text message from Matt Howie. Mm -hmm. 
saying, I will pay you any amount of money. I don't remember what he said. It probably wasn't any amount of money, but it was, it was a, a very large markup. If you can get me one of these glasses. And I stood there at the machine and I looked at the glasses and I, and there was this kind of pregnant moment where the person working the machine looked at us both and said, well, are you going to get your other pair? Like you've been allotted. Cause most people I don't think were able to get two pairs. I think you were limited to one pair per person. Mm-hmm. And I say that knowing full well that right now somewhere in Venice, California or on a loading dock somewhere in, in, uh, Pakistan, there are 10 million of those glasses sitting in boxes that no one will ever use. And they're just waiting to be sent to a crusher somewhere. But it was this kind of false scarcity of the moment. And I looked at it and I thought about this text that I'd gotten from Matt Howie. And I was like, Matt Howie, you don't really want one of these. And also I don't want to charge you any amount of money. And I don't want to be the, I don't want to be like, some kind of mule carrying these things around right. and, you know, and fighting off Kanye. And so we just limited ourselves to one pair each. And we went, I think we went and walked down, you know, fourth Avenue or whatever, wearing our glasses and, and having one of those like Mary Tyler Moore days. Mm. But whenever <laughs> I, whenever I think about this kind of Teddy Ruxpin, <clears throat> Uh, like, like fan fugue. Um, I, I, I hearken back to the, I mean, they, whoever it was that was, that Snapchat was paying to create the hysteria, uh, they earned every dollar Mm -hmm. because they absolutely created like total hysteria. Those glasses were going for $900 on eBay for a full, I don't know how many days before, but how many days. And I, and probably there's a pair that set a record, you know, someone out there got that, got that second pair and charged somebody $2,500 for it. But, uh, those glasses were worthless. I mean, less than useless. And, I, I, I don't think I ever, I don't think in, in my entire life there was ever like such an exclamation point put on a moment for me as being witness to that close up to that thing where leading up to that day, no one in the whole enterprise, billionaires and a company of thousands of people and designers and tech people and marketing people no one ever looked at those glasses and said, wait, these don't do anything. Nobody's going to use this. This is, these aren't useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole way it was, you know, it was just emperor has no clothes. And I don't know whether the Xbox five, I mean, the Xbox five probably is really fun, but I bought, I, I bought a pair of those Oculus virtual reality headset things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it wasn't until I got them home and put them on and played with them for a few hours that I realized, oh, this isn't really ready for prime time either. Like mm-hmm. this does not do as much. These are not as, as much fun as I hoped that the, the, the reality of these, um, 
doesn't live up to the promise. I'm not a gamer, though. No, but I mean, I think you, I think you have a sense, though, for what the gamers would like. Because you're plugged, you have your finger on the pulse of of the planet. I do, but I think the I think the main difference between gamers and me is that I take no pleasure in killing zombies. Right, and um, and I feel like killing zombies is a major part of gaming, or killing somebody's, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. like large numbers of somebody's is what a lot of gaming is based around. And I don't really have, I mean, you know, like there are a few earthly beings that I would you want to take kill? Ple- that I would take pleasure in killing mm-hmm. in a game. Mm-hmm. You know, like wow, I get to kill these earthly beings that are that are constantly that have given me so much trouble and strife over the years but like hordes i don't i don't i i hope never to interact with a horde and uh and certainly not interact with a horde where i have any responsibility um to kill them right like if there's a horde my my response is going to be like an avoidance response (laughs) right I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to interact with a herd at all. I want to get away from a herd mm-hmm. or a horde rather, or a herd or a herd, herd or a horde. Whenever human beings gather in large numbers and start to move as a single organism, I get to the edge as fast as I can and make sure that I have six or seven different exits. I don't like lock and load. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't, no matter how many laser cannons you gave me. That's so not, that's, how, that's where, not the way you want to go out. That's all you're saying. No, no. And you know, when I, when I was a video gamer playing big console video games at the tasty freeze, you know, you had a little, a little mono legged Qbert snork that was jumping up and down on a pyramid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, if you were, you know, if you were playing defender, yeah, certainly you were being swarmed by spaceships. But you could you could imagine that those were drones. They didn't look like they were manned spaceships. True. Uh, missile command. You were actually fighting missiles. There were no there were no people in the missiles. It was a swarm of missiles, but but they were, you know, that that was a purely defensive game. Yes. Um. Sure. I mean, space invaders were invaders, but they were weird crab monsters. Um, that were coming again in a horde, but like, uh, it was less a swarm than it was just like marching in formation, like crab monsters, Galaga, also a swarm and literally a swarm bees and bugs. I mean, these were games that, that they were not personal. You didn't really know exactly what you were fighting. Exactly. You were shooting a ship. And, um, yeah, and, or and bugs, bugs, or something, some kind of thing that didn't have uh, any kind of real analogy in real life. And now the games, of course, you're you're killing other people, or you're killing the avatar of a real person, or you're killing something that w- was a person and is now a zombie, or something like right. that. And you're saying that that's bad. Are you saying that you think it you don't like it, or are you saying you think it's bad in general? Well. 
you know, when video games first came out, there was all that hullabaloo in the press mm. about how video games were bad and violent. And, yes. you know, there was the same crowd of people that were saying that Dungeons and Dragons turned everybody into a devil worshiper. There was a lot of hand wringing in the culture at the time mm -hmm. about, um, you know, what was happening to our kids. And, um, I think absolutely that probably played a role in the fact that video games were mostly about shooting bugs and ships and alien invaders. Mm -hmm. If, if those early video games had explicitly been about killing humans, I think it would have been, uh, I mean, I, I would not be surprised if video games had become contraband, mm. um, and were banned or whatever. I mean, I, I think that that was a very, that was very conscious on the part of video game designers at the time and maybe not because they anticipated the controversy so much as that it was just a natural taboo, uh, that, that that's not the way, um, that's not the way games were played, uh, that there was still, that there were still taboos about mass murder. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, I've been, I've had a ringside seat for the decades long debate about whether violence in movies and violence in video games begets violence in the world. And I know the hot takes and I know that gamers and movie fans and all of the, all culture makers and consumers, mm -hmm. uh, will fight you with, you know, with their last breath that mass murder video games and mass murder movies and slasher films and all of the above have zero effect on whether or not there's violence in the world. Mm -hmm. I know that's the take. And so I don't weigh in on it publicly because I've done it before and I've gotten a thousand angry gamers coming after me mm -hmm. with, I don't know what studies or statistics or proof they have. And if anyone is listening who feels inclined to send me those studies, please do not. <laughs> don't do, do not, it. I don't want them. Uh -huh. I don't want to read them. I don't want to hear your, your defense of, of violence in media, but it isn't for me. I don't consume that stuff with relish. And I know there I've, I've talked about it a lot, you know, on different platforms that I just feel like, um, all the zombie media is just like such a transparent proxy for, um, for xenophobes, you know, like there are no zombies in the world. So what are, what, what are we stimulating? You know, what excitement are we stimulating in ourselves when we cast zombies as the other? And the excitement is the other, right? Other races, other, you know, those hordes are invaders. Right. And they don't look like us. And so it's, it strikes a primitive chord in us mm -hmm. because, you know, it's just like, oh, it's the Turks, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> And zombies are always, you know, they're always othered just enough mm -hmm. 
that we can distance ourselves. We can call them white walkers or whatever right. and, and distance ourselves from their humanity. Mm-hmm. And there's a little well, tragedy they're, they're, too. Like the, the whole thing is that their humanity has been removed. So it's okay to, to kill them. Exactly. We, we mourn their death when they became zombies. Yes. And now the corporeal form is just something to murder. Right. Um, but you know, that's how we talk about the other. I mean, when, when we murder, you know, when we go to war against the Turks, as they come across the Danube, we, uh, we're, we've always spent a lot of time and, and effort, uh, in a, propaganda campaign to dehumanize them. And so the stigma is taken away in war and the other, and you know, you watch the, the way that the, that the, um, people massed at America's Southern border are, um, dehumanized by, uh, for political purposes to justify all manner of, you know, inhumanity. And so there's a, there's a whole slice of American people that really picture a faceless brown horde massed at the southern border um, waiting to flood over the, uh, over the magic wall. And that just feels like what all that stuff is. All that, and I just don't, I don't mean just video games. I mean all the movies and television shows that are like a hearty ragtag band of, <laughs> of fast talking leather jacketed cool kids that are forced together to, you know, to make their way across a desolate landscape that well, used in. to be I'm our in. home. I like this. Yeah. yeah. This used to be where we lived. These were our towns and now it's all burned. And every, if you make a sound, the zombies hear you and come and steal your canned food. And it's like, okay, man, I get it. I mean, I get where it, I get it tickles you. Because I feel like I know what is being tickled and it's just, it's xenophobia, which is baked into us all. And I, and I, I feel like there are an awful lot of people that are both really, really, you know, like on, on in one breath, super anti-racist, super, um, anti-xenophobes, super like one world, one planet, one people. And then in the, in the other breath are like, stroking it over here as they <laughs> as they like super murder uh a bunch of you know a, a, well a horde that's coming over the wall and i don't know how to k- keep both of those emotional thoughts separate in in my heart cuz i feel like if you if you uh stroke that in yourself it's you know it's just like it's like eating raw liver right. um and you can go out into the world and you can have your uh, elevated thoughts and your enlightened beliefs but you know in your heart what you're the game you're playing is something very different now i've made that critique a lot of times before and i uh, you know and people debate it uh, and I think most, I, I haven't, I've never felt that people have really taken up that charge or, or raised up that banner. And I think it's because why bother, you know, keep mm-hmm. your head down. Who cares? I mean, the last thing I want now is for gamers to be mad at me. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and, and I think that gamers, even though they're, uh, m- like 
hundreds of millions of dollar industry, even though they're completely mainstream in every way and all media is made for them now, they still retain that feeling that they're a persecuted minority, which is, again, another element of our culture that is, um, you know, that's ripe for critique because, as I've said before, like everyone is a persecuted minority now, um, especially the, the most mainstream largest groups of, you know, it's just like the Republican Party feels like it's a persecuted minority. Um, like American Christians feel like they're a persecuted minority. Right. And it's just become the the lingua franca of the day. And that too is a, a, a manipulation, right? That that in our culture we've we've figured out that that's how you get people to donate money to your cause. That's how you get them to rally behind your flag. That's always been true. Um, that, you know, I mean, Hitler stood up and said the Germans were a persecuted minority in their own country and everybody rallied to him, but now it's been commercialized so that, you know, you can put on a certain tennis shoe and feel like that tennis shoe, you know, puts you in this, in a, in a, um, a class of people that are being denied their rights. And so you'd better buy more, you'd better buy more and you'd better fight and go into the world with a, with a mentality that you have to fight. And so, you know, gamers are, are bigger than the Republican party. Oh yeah. But, but they still, you know, they, they would listen to me and not just be like, eh, old man, you don't know what you're talking about or consider the idea and go, Hmm, maybe, but I can keep those two worlds separate in my emotions and I can be for peace and justice on one side and then go into a dark room and stroke it about killing tens of thousands. Uh, but what, what happens at least it, in 10% of the responses is that they feel like I am attacking them personally and attacking their values and, and I'm coming at them as a representative that I'm a representative of the mainstream, right? Which is the parents music resource center headed by Tipper Gore. <laughs> oh man. And we're trying to put stickers on their video games, you know, uh, that say, and it's this, you know, it's the exact same mentality that the gun owners have where it's like, oh, they're coming for our guns. Mm. And, and we white Americans who are stockpiling guns are the persecuted minority in this country and, um, really need to not only circle the wagons, but like go into a frothing panic every time the topic is brought up. And that's my polemical for the day. And please address all your angry letters to Dan. No, no. At Dan Benjamin at five by five. And uh, Dan will lose those emails. <laughs> and we won't have to think about them right. again. Yeah. So send them. And uh, it's the same as, you know, throwing them, throwing them into the <laughs> trash bin, printing. In fact, yeah. d once you write the email, print it. Mm, print it. And then fold it, you know, three, uh, the, the two folds, it makes a three uh, piece uh, thing. And file it away yourself in your own uh, trash can. <laughs> yeah, file it, file it in your filing cabinet <laughs> yeah. under letters to Dan and John. Right. And then if we, if we need it, 
mm-hmm. we'll we'll ask you for it. And then yeah, when can. the file gets real thick, <laughs> uh, you know, not being on Twitter and not being on Facebook now, mm-hmm. um, I don't, I no longer have a platform to in the middle of the night when I come up with, you know, when I'm like, hey, wait a minute, you know, like like my kid this morning said. She came in wearing a blanket over her head and she was like, guess, guess what I am. And mm-hmm. I said, a Jawa. And she, whether she intended to be a Jawa or not, she played along and she said, did you know that all Jawas are girls? <laughs> and I was like, huh. And you know, in one kind of little, in one line changed my whole, changed the whole star Wars universe for me. Right. Like, oh, right. All the Jawas are I girls. I know that that's true. Well, but I, it's like, what are you going to do now? Like, if all the Jawas are girls, how are you going to reconcile their behavior? You know, you thought you knew what the Jawas were, and now it turns out you were wrong. And the Jawa males are in a cave somewhere, or they live in trees, but the Jawas that we interact with are all female. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. Now, if I was still on Twitter, that would be a thing that I absolutely would have to share. And then I would have to, and then I would relish the spending the whole day fielding different comments from people. I think most people on Twitter would have picked that up and thought it was funny and there'd be some that didn't get in. Um, not being on Twitter, I don't have an outlet for that and I'm super fine with that. Somehow I managed to bring it into our show. Mm -hmm. But what I also don't have is any place where in the middle of the night I decide to pick a fight with gamers or pick a fight with the NRA or pick a fight with, you know, the, whatever, the persecuted minority of, of white evangelical Christians. And it's brought so much calm, um, or rather it's returned a kind of calm or returned a kind of expectation to my life that, uh, that my major concerns are what I see before me. I wake up in the morning, I have a family, I have, I, I walk these streets, um, you know, I go to the store and that is what I have to deal with. And it's emotionally charged enough, right? It's like difficult enough Mm -hmm. and, um, whatever, however beautiful Twitter was to me as a place to put out that pith and get little, uh, you know, little smiley faces in return, that process just became, it became overwhelming because it became realer and realer to me and something had to give, right? And you cannot have something new come in and become realer and realer and take up a larger and larger part of your emotional life and your, your mental life and just your time and not have something else have to give energy away. And realizing like, oh, wow, the, the only place that I had that could give energy to that machine was actual life and real things and real concerns. So the only place that I interact now with other people online mm-hmm. is this little message board I set up with the Patreon. And a couple of days ago, someone came on the message board and the message board is is powered by discourse, which is an open source platform of some kind. I don't know if it's entirely open source. I don't understand what open source even means. I have no idea what a non fungible token is. 
even do, though I've read we, like, do we want to talk about it here? No, I've read like 14 descriptions of it. I mean, I know what it is, but I have no idea what, why anybody would. Well, that's because you're sane. Yeah. <laughs> and somebody, you know, the, the guy that runs my record label said to me in parting, we went for a long walk. And as he was getting in his car, he was like, by the way, I thought that maybe non-fungible tokens were going to be great for the music business, but it turns out they're unholy and evil and stay away from them. And I was like, I don't even know what a non-fungible token is exactly. And he was like, good. Yeah. And he was like giving me some, he was giving me some like, um, the warning of an old crone. But anyway, there's all I have is this message board and someone came onto the message board who was already a member of it, but is also a member of Gary's van mm -hmm. on a uh, Facebook. And I think a Gary's van that's also either on discord or on Reddit or both and said, people are having a discussion over on these other places about whether this Patreon is good value because John isn't posting every day or every week. And so we're, we're discussing whether our $5 contribution is really producing $5 worth of content over here or whether we should pack our bags and take our money elsewhere. And I mean, this is a conversation happening among my, among people who are uh, fans of mine enough that they are discussing it on a fan board dedicated to mm -hmm. like, they're not just some randos who accidentally donated $5 and then waited for me to bang a tambourine every day. They're right. like my real people. We're like, wait a minute, I don't think I'm getting my $5 worth. But this, this person brought this dispute, which I had no knowledge of because it was happening in social media somewhere that I'm not going anymore, and brought it into the walled garden. And immediately a discussion started there. And very quickly, people started getting defensive. And I was, I'm just lurking, right? I've, right. I'm not there. I'm just, I'm there. I'm lurking. And I'm the only moderator right now because I believe in the, I believe that an unmoderated space is a, is a beautiful thing and maybe we can all just get along. But the discussion got contentious and then there were the inevitable like two or three back and forths between a few people who were like, well, that's not what I was saying. Why would you, you know, why would you say that I was saying that? I wasn't saying that you were saying that. <laughs> and, and it got, it just went, it just, it got Facebook like so fast. And I, for a couple of months, for two or three months, I hadn't had any of that energy in my life, which is a daily, which is something you deal with on a daily and hourly basis if you are engaging with social media. And all of a sudden, all those familiar feelings welled up. And also just the introduction of this topic set me on a, on one of those kind of all day broods where I was like, well, wait a minute, why are people dissatisfied? Am I not, do I not give enough? Like what, what do they want from me? And maybe I, maybe I shouldn't have done this in the first place. Maybe I should just, you know, maybe I should just go to Alaska and work at a ski resort and no, 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 they're right. I should, you know, I should make videos every day of me banging a tambourine and jumping around in a funny hat and maybe that will make them like me. And, you know, just like went, went immediately there.
back to that world that I, you know, I spent a dozen years in, which is like, you know, I tweeted this and I only got this many faves, but this other guy who has fewer followers than me tweeted a dumber thing and got twice as many faves. And what am I doing wrong? You know? And I came out the other side of it today mm-hmm. because last night I posted a thing on the Patreon where I was like, Hey everybody, you know, I, cause I wrote a long thing that was very defensive where I was like, look, I, I don't know what you all expect from me. I've released two podcasts and, and written half a dozen things. And this thing's only six weeks old. Like, what am I doing wrong? I wrote 2000 words where I went, you know, and not just offensive. I went on this long journey about what patronage is throughout history and uh, what altruism is and how the world has become governed by just uh, by uh, this idea that every exchange between people is some kind of financial transaction and everything we do has, has like a, a component of like, well, what am I, you know, what am I getting in return? Even free social media, even Dan, free podcasts that we make for free and that everyone listens to for free. Like there was somebody in this, in this message stream that was like, you know, I don't feel like I need to support the show monetarily because I support them by listening to their podcast. I was like, wow. Right. I mean, and that's the, there are a lot of people who believe that, that they are showing enough support or all the support that they need um, simply by listening, by being, being a listener, by consuming the podcast, that that is showing support. And you know what? In a way, yeah, I, I do agree with that. I think, you know, they're doing it, but it's different because they're also consuming the thing. So it's like if, you know, sometimes you go to a farmer's market and uh, you bring your kids there and you're up at the, the one place, you're buying some things and the guy's like, here, you know, here, here's an orange for your, for your kid. And they just hand you an orange, but you're yeah. already a customer at that point. And if sure, they're a little hand, lost leader and if, and if they handed you the orange and, and you just took it and left and didn't buy anything that would feel wrong to me that they're giving the orange because you're already becoming a customer. You're buying the stuff, you're doing the thing. Well, there are those those farmers that just sit and you know they have a bushel of oranges just to hand out to kids. Yeah, but it is it's advertising. It's advertising, and so I, but I would say that's the one situation where I feel like it, 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 it. You might make an analogy or comparison, but in the situation of like, if now, if you have ads in your show, and there is a person listening and they are listening to the ads. And maybe when they decide to buy something, they use your URL or your promo code. I would say then, yes, they are supporting by listening if they're boosting your numbers. But if it is a patron supported show and the only way it makes money is by patrons supporting it, then them just listening does nothing. Right. But they, they believe, I think that, uh, I mean, they are subscribing to the Patreon. They had to be, to be commenting on the thread, but they believe that they are, that the Patreon is that subscription is like buying a ticket to the movies. You know, they are buying a ticket with that $5 and they want return Mm -hmm. that it's not an altruistic. It's not like, I love you guys and I'm supporting the show and whatever 
bonus content you give me, that's just like icing on the cake. It's the other way around. It's like, well, I was listening to your show for free, but now you're giving me an opportunity to buy more content. And so I will buy it, but that content, it better be hot and fresh. Like listening to the show as a way of supporting would be great if you set up a server farm, like a SETI farm and, uh, and had 10,000 computers listening to the show, registering as listens so that it bolstered our ad rates mm-hmm. uh, so that we could go to the advertisers and say, oh yeah, we have a hundred thousand right, listeners. But again, that's an ad supported thing. And the problem with the ad support is it's just the same as people used to say to me when they, when Napster started stealing my music mm-hmm. and they were like, no, no, no bands make their living on tour by selling t-shirts. And I was like, you know, I've, I believe me, I've commented that a million times and, uh, no comment in my whole life has ever garnered more double fuck yous than, mm-hmm. uh, than someone who's not in a band telling me that bands make their living selling t-shirts. But I don't think people realize how little ad revenue these shows generate. Like we put ads up because we're floundering trying to figure out a way to make the shows pop, uh, profitable, not because like Miller Beer is giving us $15,000 to do a series of ads. But believe me, I'm not, I'm not, uh, kvetching because, you know, having put up this Patreon and your Patreon mm-hmm. for this show and the one on, uh, for Omnibus, like I no longer, I mean, I have switched mentally entirely to that model. And I remember when you started the Patreon for this show, being very suspicious of it and not knowing anything about it and not wanting anything to do with it. Um, and now I'm, I'm completely the other way. I feel like, I feel like the altruistic model where you are supporting a thing that you love, you know, that you are consuming that content for free and you know that things cost money to make and that things have value and that value is communicated in money. And if you are willing to pay for a Netflix subscription or willing to pay for, a um, Apple music or willing to download a song for 99 cents or whatever, or willing to pay for Spotify. Right. Um, it's not crazy to also think that you're already getting the content for free. And that $5 a month is like not an onerous expense. Right. Um, and if you're paying for Spotify and you're paying for Netflix, um, you're used to the idea that you pay for it and then you get the content. And it's just a, it's not that much of a mental leap with podcasts to realize you are already getting the content, right? It's up to you whether or not you want to pay for it, but it is, you know, the transaction is the same. We're just giving you the orange for free. And then it's kind of, you know, you have a, whether or not you feel a moral imperative or not, I don't know. Um, clearly people don't because, you know, the number of people that support our Patreon and my Patreon and Omnibus's Patreon are a, are a, a real fraction of the listeners. And I'm not I'm not here uh, haranguing. I'm just saying that this is the that as podcasters we sit and do this mental math because it's like you look at the world and um, the guys that invented Angry Birds are living on a hovercraft right now. Um, <laughs> hey, right and. And no one blames them. Everybody believe. Everybody's like, "Yeah, totally great." Angry Birds was amazing, but at the same time, you know, they listen to a podcast every week for years and years and years, and and take a lot from it and love it very much. But 
but balk at the idea that it has it has any value that um, that they're you know that they're obligated. But for me, this experience on the message board in in having that debate brought from somewhere because because the message board associated with my Patreon is an extremely positive and unmoderated place, and everybody's on there talking about science. And they're sharing their experience, hopes, and dreams. There's a whole thread of people that are talking about their struggles with drugs and alcohol. There, it's you know, it's like a, it's like a very wonderful, inclusive, diverse space where there's no anger. And this conversation didn't start there. It started out in the world on Facebook or on Discord, and someone who was in both places felt, and I think. Um, you know, with a, with a, uh, maybe a devious twinkle in their eye. Oh, I'm going to bring this conversation over into this walled garden and, and plant this little, um, invasive weed because it, it was the first thing in, in six weeks that was introduced into that environment that turned brother against brother. You know, it was the first thing and, and the defensiveness that came up around it was just exactly, I mean, it's all tied up in this conversation we just had. Some people don't want to be um, told that, uh, that uh, about, about their money or, or, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a, at the intersection of your money and the things that you love and where your obligation is, Everybody feels panic and stress in that environment. And I, not everybody, because there are a lot of people that are very, very free and are just like, Hey man, I love this thing. And here we go. Right. But it is like a, there is like a, a tense core and it got to me. And after a few days of witnessing this, I had a, that very familiar sensation of like, wait a minute, I have to keep going. Like I got off of social media and built this little walled garden and set up my lawn chair in here and was like, yeah, let's talk about science. Like I can't wait to read everybody's story. And it only took six weeks for me to read a thing that haunted me for three days and that I wrote uh, page after page of explanatory exegesis and trying to defend myself and trying to make a case and like I'm doing here on the show, like mm. trying to explain and trying to understand and, um, and realizing like it's the same, it's exactly the same. It's the same feeling that I had, um, in the first 12 hours of being dead when I started getting that feedback mm -hmm. and started feeling defensive and my heart sunk in my chest and being dad's a unique, uh, unique occurrence because it went from there to an, a completely other thing. But in the early hours of it, it was just like a hundred other controversies I'd started on Twitter that turned into a knot in my stomach that haunted me for a few days where I was fighting with strangers and people were telling me I was a bastard and I was telling them to fuck off. Right. And so sitting in my bed last night, I'm like, 
I can't even be on my own Patreon. Like I can't go there and monitor the conversation and take part in it. Right. Because it's not where I belong. Where I belong is probably the, a discussion board about model railroading or a discussion board. I don't even want to go on a discussion board about uh, the Hawker hurricane because I don't want to get into arguments about the battle of Britain with people. And probably if I went on a model train message board, I would start getting into arguments with people about, (laughs) you know, about their switch gear. And so, you know, a couple of people close to me that I was kind of sharing this experience with were Mm -hmm. like, it's and and including Ken Jennings, they were like, look, Make the thing you make. You're not a message board person. You're a thing. You're a thing maker. Make the thing you make. Put it on there. What other people do, whether they support you or not, whether they change their contribution from ten dollars to five dollars, whether they take their five dollar contribution and stick it in their ear because you didn't do what they wanted or thought you should. Right. None of that should be on your radar. Mm-hmm. And and I was sitting there thinking like. Is it possible for me to make podcasts and music and, and writing and all the things that I want to do and fold it up and put it in a file and stick it through a slot in the wall, which is whatever portal I've chosen to deliver that to the world, whether it's talking to you on the microphone or posting something to the Patreon and saying like, here's the thing. Is it possible for me to do that? And then divorce myself entirely from, uh, the response, like not be interested at all, or if interested, not allow myself, um, the indulgence of sneaking, tiptoeing into the room, looking for, you know, putting a, putting, putting a glass to the wall, trying to hear what people are saying about it. I honestly don't know. I don't know how I think there are plenty of brilliant creators out there that never got addicted or allowed themselves to care what people thought about their work. And I think I was, I was always, and still am insecure enough about my work and the place and my place in the world that that I keep going back to putting that glass against the wall saying like, do they like it? Is it good? Do they want it? Is it, Mm -hmm. should I change it? And even as I sit here telling you about it, Dan, I realize like that's the, that, that friend, that monkey on my back has been with me since the first thing I ever made. And it has no relationship to the thing. It doesn't help me make a better thing. Right. It really doesn't. It never has. Like reading the letters to the editor in Magnet Magazine where somebody's like, oh, that new Long Winter's record isn't as good as the Fruit Bats record. And I'm like devastated for a year. But I, but you couldn't keep me away. So what do I do, Dan? How do yeah, I, I this, this is part of the retraining of my mind. Yeah. <laughs> 
right? That that is that's part and parcel of trying to retrain my brain to not think I'm doing a bad job at everything and to not feel like I'm disappointing everyone all the time. And and I'm going right to the well of you know, like to the very source of feeling like I'm disappointing everybody all the time. And I'm standing there with a giant like catcher's mitt just inviting people to tell me how they're disappointed. And I carry that feeling around with me every single day. I don't, I don't need a message board to deliver that to me. I, I feel like a disappointment to my father who's been dead for 13 years. I mean, I, like, I don't I think you're going to apologize to him. I don't think that you're going to be able to resolve this, you know, right now on the, on the show today, um, right now, this yeah. it, in the next hour, or yeah, the, we, yeah. we're already kind of deep in. I don't know if we have an hour left. Yeah, like no, I mean, we're, we're at an hour. We'll have to f- resolve it on the after show. But I think that you, you know, I think if you take a look at what, what's going on here is you now have your audience and the all, anyone, I would say this, anyone who cares enough about you to support your work. There, and I mean, you might get new ones. I'm not talking about the new ones, but I'm saying about the ones that are plugged in enough to know what's going on with you. You've gone and created this community. I would say stop worrying about it now and just start doing the stuff that you like for yourself and share it with these people because that's what they're there for. They're not, they're not there for you to make stuff for them they're there to enjoy the stuff that you make period that's what i think anyway i don't think that their their expectation is that you're going to share all this cool stuff that that you do because you are kind of a conduit for a creative force in the universe and they like they like the filter through which that creative energy comes and that filter's name is john roderick that was exactly what i thought that and is, that's spent, the case. That is the case. But I spent I spent six weeks in this like garden where I was like, they're just supporting me. Like everybody's everybody's just happy and they want me to succeed. But I was doing the thing, and you've probably done this with Patreon. Patreon's very the 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 app itself and the company. They really really want you to know your statistics. It's a big part of because they're because the model. Uh, of the business is that they want you to generate engagement and they want you on there communicating with your fans and banging a tambourine and making stuff. And, and that's how Patreon envisions itself. And they're all about the tiers and they want you to try and bump people up to a higher tier. That's like they've gamified it. And the company itself spends zero time or energy, uh, suggesting that another use case of their site, and I think a much better one, is this pivot, this transition to like, do you like this artist? Do you want them to keep making art? Well, give them a little bit of money. And it's not tied to um, anything. It's just like, here's $5. I hope that you make some cool stuff. You know, let let me know. Um, you know, it's a subscription model that you're, it's an eel you're meant to forget about. Mm-hmm. Um, you pick an amount that you can afford and, and roll the dice, let it ride. But Patreon doesn't spend any time on that. 
Uh, okay, here's, because- here, here's my analogy. Here's my analogy. Yeah. Okay. You know these Marvel movies that come out that are really big, the Avengers and all those. Yeah. There are a lot, lot of a uh, lot of mass murder in those. Movies. Yeah, yeah, there is actually. It's a nice little reconnection to the top of the show. But I think for most people who are fans of that kind of movie, they don't really care which characters in the movie. They don't care how long the movie is. They're there for that movie. And so when this, um, you know, when this next Marvel movie, whatever it is, comes out. They're going to be there for it. They're going to go and let's, let's make believe that theaters were still a thing and tickets were still a thing and going to movies was still a thing. Let's make believe. Let's just make believe they're going to go. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether the reviews are good or bad. It doesn't matter if their friends are, you know, said, Oh, it was not good or it was great. They're going to go and see the movie anyway. It's, it doesn't matter. And they know that the movie tickets going to cost, I don't know how much a movie tickets cost 10, 15 bucks, whatever. And then you get a popcorn and whatever. They're yeah. going to do all of that stuff and they're going to go to the movie theater and watch the movie. And then they're going to come out and say, that movie was great. Or they're going to say, well, that, that wasn't really the best one, but they're still going to show up and see it be, just because it's a Marvel movie and they like Marvel movies. It's that simple. Right. And right. that's your audience is they're not sitting there saying, well, boy, the chorus in that song was a piece of crap. What was he thinking? They're like, John made a song and now <laughs> I'm singing it. You know what I'm saying? Like you're overthinking this. Just do the stuff that you do. Well, the stats is the thing. Like I started watching the stats. stats. Never, never look at the stats. And it's like every day, every day I was gaining supporters in numbers and I was losing money because people that had originally pledged at $20 had bounced down to 10 or. Oh, I can explain. I can explain that to you. I can explain oh. that to you. And that has nothing to do with what you're creating. Oh, okay. So, so that's actually, that that's useful information. Let me explain how this thing works. Oh, okay. When you just started the thing, you just started the thing. People, your, your fans, your loyal, loving fans said, oh my gosh, I, I feel so bad that John is going through this. I want to support him. I want to help. Yeah. And you know, he's just starting this. I'm, I feel like he should have some of my money, but how much am I going to give him? Well, to jumpstart this thing, I'm going to give him 20 bucks because he could use it. He could use the 20 bucks. I might not want to keep giving him 20 bucks every month. And it doesn't matter what he produces. It doesn't matter if the next, you know, cinnamon is coming out of this thing. I don't care. I'm not going to be giving him 20 bucks forever. I don't care, but I, I will give him five bucks. I will give him five bucks. But this month, this first month, that's my $20 pledge going to him. That right. $20 pledge is going to hit. And then the second month, you're like, oh, right. I got to back that thing down now to what I'm really comfortable actually giving, which is $5 a month. I've right, helped right, him with right. the 20. That was 15 more than I'm regular to do. But now I'm back down to the five. I'm going to continue to support him. And then there's a second category of people who said, John needs my money, but you know what? I'm going to help him, but I don't want to help him in an ongoing basis. I just want to help him get back on his feet, but there's no place where I can do a one-time donation on Patreon. I have to do a monthly donation. I don't even want the stuff that he's doing. I just want to help him. And then I'll go back to listening to his shows, but I want to give him right now. I want to give him 15 bucks or 10 bucks. And 
I'll do that. I'll set up a $10 donation. After the first one goes through, I'm going to cancel it because I wanted to give him 10 bucks, but there wasn't a way for me to just give him $10 without signing up right. and becoming a member. So now I've given him that and I'm going to pull it back. And and then there's the other people who are just in there saying, oh, maybe I had a tight month or I can't afford it or whatever. But th those first two are things that I've seen all the time as I have done lots of fundraising things over the years and asked for donations and support and things like that. Most of the right. time, those are the, and when I've asked people about it or talked to them about it or read articles about it, cause this is something I've, I've been very curious about myself. Typically those two things are the, are the main reasons that people reduce what they're spending. It's very rarely that they say, I'm not getting value out of this, or I'm not getting the value that I was hoping for out of this. That can happen. And I'm sure that some people do feel that way, but my, my money is on the fact that most people came out with a big push for you, a showing of, of, you know, putting their money where their mouth is kind of thing. And then they scaled it down to like, well, I helped John a lot. Now I'm going to help him a little. And I don't think yeah. that that's because people are seeing what you're doing and thinking, what a putz, this isn't any good. I'm out. I don't think that's what's happening. I think they're like, I helped them a lot. Now help them a little. Right. That's my, my read on it. Well, it makes, it makes perfect sense. And I think the issue is more to do with the fact that I clearly become obsessed with this type of thing. And I'm, you know, I generate, uh, I generate negative drama. Um, because I get, you know, I get to a point where, well, I'm not on social media anymore. So I'm going to go look at my Patreon statistics eight times a day. Right. And I'm going to monitor every change, every $5 increment change. And I'm going to wonder if it's a sign of what's wrong with me, or I'm going to wonder if every one of those, you know, the, the, it goes up $20 and I feel like, wow, I'm on my way. And then, you know, and the, and my Patreon is well, uh, funded and I'm, and I'm super grateful. It's just that every, you know, you could shower me with, with, the <clears throat> heavenly mana and I would find a way <laughs> right. to feel like it wasn't, you know, that, that in, in some sense I was being showered with it because I was failing to live up to expectations. Mm-hmm. And it's that it's the, it's feeling like the audience has expectations that, that every one of those little, um, every, every, now it is, it has gone from faves to coins. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's the same, I have the same relationship to the world, which is please tell me I'm doing it right. And people are like, you're doing it right. And I'm like, I don't believe you. Uh, and in fact, the other night in trying to stop looking at Patreon in an obsessive compulsive way. Yeah. I texted my friend Ben Acker and said, you know, this is two o'clock in the morning. And I was like, what are people in Hollywood saying about me right now? And Ben was like, what? Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. You know, all of our friends down in Hollywood, like what's their take? Is everybody mad at me or what's the deal? And he was like, look, man, I don't, uh, it hasn't really come up. Um, because we are all in the middle of a global pandemic and nobody's doing anything and we're all out of work and we're sitting around trying to figure out like if, w if there will ever be a, uh, a live event or a movie made ever again. So I haven't really, it's not, we're not sitting around like wondering how you're doing, although how are you? 
I'm like, oh, right, right, right. I'm fine. Good. Glad. Well, I'm not sure why I suddenly needed to know whether or not everyone in Hollywood was talking about me. But I, you know, I do this, like I text people in the middle of the night and sometimes I text them in the middle of the night and go, that time 18 years ago when you said that thing, what did you mean by that? You know, just like, just like stirring a pot because, and I don't know whether, I mean, people in my life want to relate it to bipolar disorder and the, and my doctor wanted to relate this kind of behavior to it. But I think of it as being a, you know, it's spillover from, um, because it feels exactly like getting high. Hmm. You know, it feels exactly like, well, shit, you know, I need something to happen now because I can't just sit here and be, so I need to go get messed up. Um, and you know, and I'll take whatever drug comes along. Like I'm not looking to go get speedy or to get, um, doped i'm just looking for whatever you got so if it's speed i'll do it if it's dope i'll do it um just get me out of here kind of and i haven't done drugs in over 20 years but i've replaced that feeling with or i've replaced that impulse or that um i haven't replaced the impulse at all i've replaced the the mode the method with dozens of other things but the feeling of like okay, here I am and it's night and I'm alone and get me the fuck out of here. Right. Uh, is the same. And it's, and it's the same. It's, it, it's, it's really connected. It drives me to find, um, to find emotional turmoil because it's the only way I can feel normal or feel, I don't know what feel, um, you know, the only way I can feel is that if you hit me and I welcome it, you know, or I, I, uh, because it, because of it, it's the, it's something that I incite in people like, will you, will you hit me please? <laughs> so that, <laughs> right. You want to feel can, something, you just you know, want to so, feel something. Well, or, or it will focus my feelings because I'm sitting here feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling crazy. I'm feeling so much emotion. I just don't have a healthy place to put it. I don't have a way to express it. Like guitar is one place I put it. Um, like playing guitar in the middle of the night is, is one way. And lately because I, because the Patreon has, has offered me the opportunity to sit and write 2,500 words that I would never publish. I, you know, sitting and typing at night helps me and those feel positive like I'm producing something, mm -hmm. but every night I sit and have overpowering feelings that I cannot, or at least in 52 years have not figured out a way to tie to positive feelings or definitely positive behaviors. Mm -hmm. Like most people would say, Oh, like time for bed <laughs> or, or maybe you should do a little exercise or, and, uh, you know, and instead I'm like, wow, if I go out and I wonder how long it will take if I walk around this neighborhood in a hoodie for the police to pull me over. 
um, just, you know, looking for, looking for jazz. And it's extremely, you know, my sister will sit and say like, well, just saying all that out loud or thinking about it in the moment before you act is half the battle or more, you know, it's, it's, um, that's the strength. But in my experience, like the whole knowing it is half the battle thing takes years to play out. And, you know, years later you look back and go, oh, right. And I, I you know, I, I'm not in a hurry. I can't be in a hurry. I've been, I've been carting around this, hor- uh, this, you know, this, um, I mean, th- this, this tanker has been wedged in my Suez Canal for decades. It's not a tanker. Container ship. Mm-hmm. And all the containers on it, all of the all of the electronics in them have um, have become obsolete, and all the fresh fruit has spoiled. 